Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Industry Show. This is season two, episode five. I'm Nitin Bajaj, and we are in San Diego in the beautiful home of Deepa Pralad. Deepa, thank you for joining us. And thank, thank you, you for, for having, having me. It's a pleasure. So this is a beautiful home, and <laughs> uh, you know, amazing weather. So, <laughs> and we really appreciate you doing this. I know you had a, a crazy flight to coming <laughs> back and then you got caught up with some allergies and things so <laughs> thanks a lot that's okay really happy to be here okay well so let's let's kind of start from the beginning tell us about you know where were you born your childhood and you know take us through that journey sure i was born in um, ahmedabad and my parents at that time had already planned to come to graduate school in the united states so from the time I was an infant, my first international flight was at the uh, tender age of two months old. Wow. <laughs> so I came to uh, Boston. Uh, my parents were both doing their graduate studies at Harvard, mm -hmm. and uh, they returned to India. So I lived in Ahmedabad for about a year mm -hmm. when I was three, and then we returned um, to the U U.S. So I mm -hmm. pretty much did all my schooling, and all my childhood was spent um, in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Mm -hmm. And... Um, we really had the privilege of going back to India on a fairly regular basis. And also my father took several visiting professorships during the summers mm -hmm. in Europe. So we had the fun of being able to travel and see the world from a young age and uh, kind of getting that real love of looking at different ways people approach things. Nice. So, well, I can't even imagine at two months old taking a 20 hour flight. <laughs> I feel sorry for my mom. I don't remember anything. <laughs> <laughs> so you've traveled a lot. What's, uh, what's one of your favorite cities? I really can't narrow it down to one. I would say Boston, Mumbai, and Marrakesh have been my absolute favorites for different reasons, but okay. uh, a lot of fun. Well, I was surprised by my husband for uh, a birthday trip, and that was a place I'd always been fascinated by, and it was everything that I was expecting. Uh, I was very just visually so interesting mm -hmm. um, and we had a chance to walk around late at night go into all these little markets and also have this very European yeah. Paris cafe culture mm -hmm. um, and everybody knew Bollywood so right. we were welcomed with open yeah. arms everywhere yeah. we went we never felt like strangers everybody yeah. um, again looks forward to the International Film mm -hmm. Festival and Bollywood stars so we received a really warm welcome and so I would have seen movies that we haven't even heard of. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So everybody knew we were Indian and they went out of their way to welcome us. So it was fantastic. That's awesome. So any sport or activity growing up that you enjoyed? And well, sports are definitely not my thing. So, <laughs> And I think everyone who knows me knows that. But one thing that I really um, have continuously done, I always loved books and reading has just been mm -hmm. a passion. And the other thing is that the idea of creation, just doing little things, started out with coloring and beading, and I think now, since getting married, just that idea of tinkering with things mm -hmm. and trying to create has really stuck with me. So my husband and I, and now even my son, love to build little projects, and that's something that we do on a fairly regular mm -hmm. basis. That's one of your projects. Yeah. Your project, right? <laughs> it awesome. is. Tell us a bit more about that. So I really loved, like I said, India and Morocco have yeah. these kind of doorways, and so... I just said, we have to find some way to recreate mm -hmm. that. And then I looked into how complicated and difficult shipping anything was. <laughs> <laughs> so we happened to have this arch from India, and we found 
old doors that were very plain. And I actually found resources on the web to get Indian stencil designs cut and wow. spent a little time and um, recreated an approximate version <laughs> of yeah, a design awesome. I had liked. So how long was this project, like a weekend? Uh, yeah, I think sourcing stuff is sometimes takes longer than actually executing it because they make it very modular. You mm -hmm. can do little pieces at a time. So it actually turned out to be fun. What, what other projects have you, have you done? Well, there's so many in the garage that are half finished. <laughs> so <laughs> if one of your questions was, <laughs> what are some of the purchases you regret? <laughs> I can point to my one-car garage. <laughs> But, you know, the dreams, the dream is always there. But we like to do a lot of little things in the garden, and we've built an herb garden. We've built mm -hmm. small pieces of furniture. Nothing too difficult, but um, Arjun loves to help out now as well, and he's pretty nice. good at it. Nice. Yeah, and he's just kind of an extra hand, sort of hands <laughs> and legs. Yeah, cool. So uh, I'm going to take a couple questions sure. from, my, from my rapid fire. Um, something that you carry around with you, which is, you know, interesting or a lucky charm? I don't know if it's interesting, but one thing I've learned now after going back and forth is to always carry those very weird size Indian passport photos. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> because somehow or the other, I always end up in a situation where there's some form and the ones from here just don't work. So we finally said, we're going to take 50 of these and keep them in our <laughs> wallet. So we're good. <laughs> That's really interesting. Uh, if you were running for office, what would be your your quote or your punchline? Get him out. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, this, I, I can't follow that up. <laughs> so, growing up, what was your favorite, like, a character or a book from a, maybe from a TV series or a cartoon? I think very early on, I started reading a lot of biographies um, as much as fiction books. So I. I think that reading about the backstory and the life story of a lot of people who have made an impact on history was something I did very early on. And I, I can't even really point to a single one because mm -hmm. I think that trying to understand that um, what the journey is for people, but definitely characters that I spent a lot of time trying to understand were people like Gandhi because being mm -hmm. from Ahmedabad, we traveled right. to Sabarmati Ashram, um, Martin Luther King. I think people who made a social change mm -hmm. Um, or those were things that I've always, you know, continue to try and learn about. Okay. So, you know, coming from coming from that to what you do now, you're a you're an author, you're a consultant, you're also a social innovator. Tell us more about, you know, what do you do? Well, I think one of the things that has always been the case until recently is that people have tended to think that um, the social impact is really more in direct help and charity. And I think that even if we look at the people in history who have been social innovators, mm -hmm. like Andrew Carnegie with public libraries, mm -hmm. there has been an innovation process behind mm -hmm. that. They have had to question assumptions. They've had to look very deeply at why things are right. the way they are. And I think, you know, if you look at India's history especially, you really see that even the people who are trying to look at impact were innovators. I mean, the idea of Indian independence was there for hundreds, a hundred years before it happened. Right. But it's really inventing the mm -hmm. device like the charka and the narrative around it right. that made things possible. And so I think, um, you know, a lot of successful people have felt, let me make my money, then I want to give right. back. 
And I think um, really understanding that giving back and successful businesses should automatically change the social environment, create new opportunities for people, and how do you amplify that? It tends to happen by accident, but how do you make it very designed and deliberate? Right. Um, is kind of creating a structure around so that you can enable that movement to take place. And also when you give people very aspirational products and mm -hmm. services and they change their own behavior, you will create the space for social change to happen, mm -hmm. for conversations to happen. If you look at something as simple as the cell phone, for example, mm -hmm. I remember going back to India you know, when I was younger, and as much as you wanted to blend in with the fabric, there was always that invisible right. wall there. People yes. could see that you're coming from abroad, and right. aside from a few words, there wasn't much interaction. And I think that really the introduction of these technologies has changed that. I remember about 10 years ago, I was traveling when my son was a toddler, and he was incredibly fussy, and I didn't know what to do because our flight was boarding. And there was a woman in all the traditional Rabari dress in Ahmedabad airport. And she just looked at me and just signaled. We didn't really exchange a word, but she pulled up all the Hanuman music oh, on wow. her cell phone. And my son recognized it because he had seen right. it here. And he started dancing, calm down before we boarded the flight. And that was so powerful to me because first of all, she wasn't looking at me as a right. foreigner. She was seeing me as a mother. As a mother. So there was that connection, mm -hmm. but also my son recognized those songs because my in-laws yeah. had brought back the DVD yeah. here. So I realized that these connections are what entrepreneurs mm -hmm. um, do. They create those. They don't happen by accident. So if we think about how we continually power that type of conversation, mm -hmm. our impact automatically um, really increases and gets amplified. That's a, that's a very simple but deep example of, you know, how can you remove those barriers? And I remember, you know, when you said people still knew that you're coming from abroad, like even the rickshawalas would know. Yeah. That, you know <laughs> without you even saying Absolutely. a word, they know, they pick up. Like you're not, you're not Indian in that sense. That's, that's really amazing. So, you know, you work with a lot of the corporations you work with. You work uh, with a lot of companies here in India, but also in, uh, in the U.S. What are some of your typical engagements like? You know, who, who are your customers and what are you helping them with? I think a lot of the interest now is industry-wide in just design in general because mm -hmm. I think what's happened with the IT revolution is that a lot of people are no longer able to make an impact on information alone. Mm -hmm. People do understand macro trends, they understand demographics and incomes, but what's happening is um, Identifying an opportunity, if we can create this for this price, there's a huge market. Amateurs can do that. Mm -hmm. Students can do that. So the real question is, design comes in, how do you do it? And so I think competition has moved to the 10-yard line. Right. How well do you execute and implement and make that change possible? Mm -hmm. And I think especially if you're an entrepreneur, your design is really almost the entire difference between somebody telling you, hey, you have a great idea, and somebody saying, when can I buy it? Right. When can I place an order? Mm -hmm. You have to really motivate that behavior change through the interactions people have with your product and design. And that's really interesting. You know, the, the one thing that comes to me as an example of design is, you know, that constant fight between Apple and the Android system, right? That's purely, a, to me, a design game, right? How Apple is designing their products and placing them in the market compared to how Google and Android are putting out their phones, which doesn't have a consistent design, but now Google is coming out with the Pixel phones, which they're trying to copy the design aspects and elements of what Apple has done. 
So uh, I also know you, you put out uh, one of your articles, you said design is more important than quality. So tell us a bit more about that. I, I don't think it's more important than quality, but people assume a certain level of quality. And I right. think in certain industries, I mean, in software and technology, unless you're creating to a global standard, mm -hmm. you can't really enter the market. I right. mean, if you have fast fashion or it, people might tolerate different things. But in many industries, mm -hmm. there is a quality expectation built right. in before you can enter it. So That's kind of the minimum. It's so a it's minimum a standard. Right. But I think that what design does is it's supposed to create conversations mm -hmm. and interactions. So I think there's a tendency to look at consumer products and highly branded fashion and things and mm -hmm. try to export that understanding of design. But design, I don't think the purpose is to create a secret language. Right. Really good design creates a shared language, mm -hmm. right? So people should be able to, if not afford everything that you're doing, understand it, be mm -hmm. inspired by it. So something like Apple, even if you don't necessarily know or like their or use their products, they have created a conversation around usability and the design itself has enabled them to do other things that people can't. Somebody could copy the physical mm -hmm. design. In fact, Samsung copied they it can't. so well they got sued. Right. <laughs> so right. even very high levels of design can be mm -hmm. copied to some extent. But it's very difficult to create the community, the app store. And the philosophy. And, and the trust behind that. Because when you've told people what you're trying to do, they respond to it. So if you look at something like the Apple developers, you think about it, when you have a good idea, you're even cautious mm -hmm. which friends and family right. you share it with. Right. But this is a company that gets people to give their A ideas for free, mm -hmm. only with the expectation that I get feedback, and right. if they like it, I get recognition and some revenue. Mm -hmm. So that's really powerful, and there are always going to be more ideas out there right. than one could ever come up with, even with the smartest group of, of people inside. Right. And what do you think of, you know, one is coming up with the, with the ideas and then taking that to implementation, right? And how many of those do you see kind of falling through? So what, what kind of culture needs to drive that design to implementation philosophy? I think really a lot of the companies that do it well have not done, you know, hired some very fancy person. What mm -hmm. they've invested a huge amount of time and effort with is understanding emotions that people right. have and what their aspirations are, what their dreams are, right. habits are. Because when you're creating a completely new product or technology, how can you really benchmark it? Mm -hmm. It's difficult. So you right. can only take cues from other behaviors, from attitudes, from behavior in other categories, mm -hmm. and try to understand what gives people comfort, um, what inspires them. That's one thing. And the other thing is you have to make it exciting. Mm -hmm. Um, so when you're introducing something new, you're telling people on some level what you were doing until this point could right. be different, could be improved. Right. So how do you make that process so exciting? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, we don't want it changes in business meetings and you get irritated with small process changes right. and then the same people will go bungee jumping, <laughs> <laughs> you know, weekend. So where's right. the risk? But the right. point is somebody made that behavior exciting mm -hmm. and interesting and something you want to brag and talk about. Right. So there's, yeah, I think there's, um, I forget who wrote this, but there was a, your design or your product has to be 10x better for people to adopt it and bring it into their everyday work life or their personal lives. So, and, and design plays a major role in getting that uh, through. So, you know, I have, I have an audience question here. Uh, mm -hmm. Maybe I should just uh, take that now. So how does one get to write for, you know, you've, 
you're a published author, you've written for Bloomberg and Business Week and, and a bunch of other Harvard Business uh -huh. Review. So the question we have is, how does somebody get to write for these publications? Um, and you also conduct workshops at uh, the Harvard Business School. So how do you, like, how does that come about, I guess? Well, we were very fortunate. I think um, I actually was wrote, uh, co-authored a book called Predictable Magic. Right. And so there was an existing um, Harvard Business School case mm -hmm. study on the methodology that we described in that book. So. Um, when that was coming out, the door opened for Huffington yeah. Post and Harvard Business Review. But I have seen in other cases, a lot of people very smartly use LinkedIn. Mm -hmm. um, they actually approach people they admire and mm -hmm. say, these are my ideas, would you be interested in doing a joint right. piece? And if you do it that way, usually you have to be a second author. Right. That's a great way. A lot of people tend to give really interesting short um, YouTube videos or mm -hmm. other digital content um, Twitter. I'm mm -hmm. not an expert on using social mm -hmm. media by any means, but I know people who have used that as a channel. People respond to this. A mm -hmm. surprising number of people read that, and that's been a channel for a lot of um, people. And it's also kind of low risk. You can put a few ideas. You don't have to give away everything right. um, if you can't protect it. Right. So I think that's another way to, if you're starting out. But probably just getting into the practice of, of writing and laying out your logic is a great place to start. So going back to uh, you know some of your work, do you have these engagements with your customers on a on an individual basis, or do you have other partners that you bring into the fray? It really depends on the client. I know that definitely with some of the large companies, when they are dealing with um, you know a new product introduction, they sometimes like to bring in a team okay. of different people um, to approach it. You know the engineering side. They have usually their own internal teams mm -hmm. presenting alongside. So I've worked that way in many companies. Um, and as far as speaking engagements, I'm generally doing that on my own or okay. as part of a conference. Do you have to go out and look for partners? Like, is there a you know if you have, um, I guess, an engagement and it needs some other additional people to come in? How do you go about looking for partners then? Yeah, again, I think that you know, on the nature of the project, this is where I think entrepreneurs and everyone need to just really be self-aware and be right. able to tell clients. Right. A lot of my work comes in through referrals. People mm -hmm. see a speaking engagement or something and they approach. But if what they want is you know somewhat more involved or mm -hmm. complex, if they want you know some random thing that I don't know how to do, right. I have to tell them right away. Yeah. <laughs> this yeah. is what I can absolutely do. Right. This is where we might need someone. Mm -hmm. So sometimes they help source. Other times, I mean, I do have a lot of um, friends doing interesting things, fortunately, and I mm -hmm. said, well, if you need a recommendation, I can help you, but you please vet them right. and see if that suits right. your needs. So uh, tell us something about uh, you know, your work in India. Uh, I know you're involved more in, in the social innovation aspect of it, So, and there's some really interesting work that uh, you're involved with. So tell us a bit more about that. I think India is just such an exciting place right now. I know um, there's just on every level, I, mm -hmm. people are willing to try different things. There's a lot of move from government to make in India to do right. all of these things. So it's a very different, very optimistic mm -hmm. um, place today. And I really enjoyed going there and engaging with people because now they don't have this question, is there a market right. at the bottom of the pyramid? It's more about how do we experiment, how do we find the right answers. So my favorite is I've actually directly mentored um, an innovator from Ahmedabad, 
uh, whose name is Hasid Kanatra, and mm -hmm. I have made, a, after a few years of working with him, a very small investment in his firm just for disclosure. But what he basically did is he went around different parts of India and said, you know, the real difference between housing for the rich and poor is that people are okay at getting four walls up. They have the brick walls that are reasonably stable, but the real gap between the rich and the poor is in the roofing right. because poor people can really only afford metal sheets and other bad solutions. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing in between the metal sheet and concrete. Yeah, it's extremes. Of so, but that's where all of the inconvenience, the disease, the lack of yeah. hygiene really comes in. Mm -hmm. And so he said, what can we do about that? So it, it was a process of a lot of different iterations, probably about 200 iterations. Wow. But what he found is a way to take um, cardboard mm -hmm. and other recyclable materials and create roof tiles that are eco-friendly but completely waterproof and are... Um, as strong as concrete, but much lighter. So what mm. you can do is rather than telling somebody that everything is wrong with your house, you can actually retrofit this mm -hmm. onto a whole variety of different structures. And also because it's in, in sections, you don't have to necessarily, if people are doubtful about the product right. or they can't afford, they can do a portion a of their phased, house, yeah. a phased approach, or they can do an outside and mm -hmm. create an awning covered outside area as their first try. So it's actually... So I'm looking at these and we'll post these on the, in the comments section also. So these are just blocks like you were saying. Yes, so they install um, metal cross beams inside mm. the house and sometimes they do have to um, fit the... I think they need you to turn it around. Okay. Yeah, so they sometimes um, they fit these beams inside mm. the house uh, and they fit all of this, and there's a sealant that's applied. And really excited, my husband and I spent time in India after a really bad monsoon, and mm -hmm. none of the roofs leaked. Uh, so <laughs> it was pretty exciting. But more importantly, I think you know the whole emphasis in Silicon Valley, rightly, is about how do you mm -hmm. have an ecosystem, and we tend to think that the ecosystem is something that needs to exist before we can be innovative. Okay. But what I've really found out working on this project is when you have an interesting innovation, an ecosystem also Bombs forms around, around it. Right. People are so excited. And yeah. I think what he really did was build deep connections and trust in the local mm -hmm. community. And it's just been absolutely fabulous how many ideas have come from people themselves. And I, I think that's one of the main things that you really struggle with, um, especially when you're trying to deal with these very complex issues of poverty is you put so much pressure on yourself saying, I need to find right. some kind of a solution mm -hmm. on my own. And when you talk to people, you realize that a lot of poverty isn't really a lack of knowledge, it's mm -hmm. a lack of choices. Right. So that's where business can have this unbelievable impact in exactly. just creating more choices. And I think all of us who have come abroad from India, you kind of realize that mm -hmm after a while that it wasn't necessarily that all of us gained 20 IQ points. We had a lot more options and we had a few headaches like power and water yep. <laughs> taken yep. off of our plate. <laughs> right. And that gives you the mental space to, to do, do a lot of other yeah. things. And so I think what rather than try to solve every single problem, I think understanding the aspiration was so critical because mm -hmm. and I think why this worked also is during the interview process and talking to people, understood that people had a cost in mind of mm -hmm. what the bad roof right. meant for their family. They knew, oh, right. when I have to miss a day of mm -hmm. work, this is what it costs. Right. 
and this is how much inconvenience, and this is what a hospital visit. So you knew there's a capacity to pay because people very clearly understood the bad option, the value, yeah. <laughs> what it was really costing them. Yeah. And, and some of the reasons why people said it would help really, I think, stick with you and, and give you the motivation because they had a family that said, well, having a good roof would help us because our son is very educated, but we're not sure that anyone wants to send their mm -hmm. daughter to a house with a roof like this. Yeah. So then you have a very different level of motivation mm -hmm. to keep going. What does is, what is something like this cost? Like is it a cost per square foot or is it a project-based cost? Yeah, I think there's a lot of retrofitting sometimes on mm -hmm. existing walls. So it's changing now, but I think what microfinance has done is really stepped in mm -hmm. and, uh, and actually um, helped out with financing. Unfortunately, there isn't we a haven't installed enough yeah. <laughs> where there is, uh, but they're in the scale-up phase. Nice. So, you know, talking about the bottom of the pyramid, uh, your dad, unfortunately, is not with us, but he's left a great legacy of work behind us. Uh, how has his work influenced you and, and in what you do? Well, I think the fortunate thing we had is that he never really separated his work mm -hmm. from family. So right. he always asked us for feedback from a very young age on everything that he was writing, all three of us, my mom, my brother and I were given drafts and asked for our comments. Um, and I think that was his way of involving us and teaching us to yes. think critically. But the thing that I learned from him is not even so much the frameworks, but the way in which he approached problems still inspires me. He never assumed that the only people who could give him feedback were people who were experts. I just saw yeah. him engage with everybody, from the person who picked up his bag in the airport to the drivers, because he knew that you know what happens inside companies impacts everybody on the ground. Yeah. And if what we're suggesting there doesn't make sense for people who have to live with the consequences, mm -hmm. we should all think twice. Um, because two generations down, it'll come back uh, to bite you. So he genuinely had a very friendly attitude and I think the listening he did, um, I think what happens also is as you become more recognized, you have to make a conscious effort to do that because right. people don't want to approach you right. Right. <laughs> or they assume that you're somehow judging them and right. he always made that effort and I think um, that always helped him get a fresh perspective. I remember meeting him, I only had a chance to meet him a couple of times, but I remember him being so down to earth and so receptive <laughs> and a great listener. So, unfortunate loss, but, you know, like I said, you know, great legacy of work that he's left behind for us. Okay. Um, any interesting stories or lessons you learned from him? You know, obviously he was taking your feedback all along, but <laughs> anything that kind of stands out for you? Yeah, I think that really the the thing that I find so interesting is he had such a clear perspective of whenever he had a lot of different ideas to choose among, he always used to ask us who would be better off because mm -hmm. of this work. Because as you get more notoriety, as people start reading your books, you get approached right. to do a lot of different things. Mm -hmm. And it's hard to understand where you can make an right. impact. So he always had that very simple question. <laughs> and he said, maximize the number of people who would be better off. Don't look at only who's going to pay you the most on this particular day. Of wow. course, that has some importance as well. But really think about big problems, because little problems will be solved by a right. lot of people. But think about how you can really make life and better. Focus on the impact of and that kind of see, I can see that in the in the roofing project. Yeah, right? I mean, it's, it's like a huge problem. And then you're yeah. like, it's not limited to India, right? right? If this 
goes well. We're already getting inquiries at such an early stage. Africa, yeah, yeah, so many countries that could benefit directly from that. Um, how has your Indian ethnicity helped you or influenced you, I should say, in in your work? I think just being Indian, you have, in my view, two really huge assets. One is you are forced mm -hmm. to think about extreme forms of diversity right. on every level. Yeah cultural, economic, religious, and you have to come to terms with that. And I think because of that, a lot of really interesting Indian companies today, they're not firmly in one sector or the other. It's really only Indian brands that are speaking to this full spectrum of people, whether it's, and even the really big ones, like Tata has a right. Nano and they have a Jaguar. Right. Yeah, even the because economic spectrum. Because of right. the reality of what India is. And I think the other thing that's interesting about being Indian is you don't have the capacity or the freedom to just say, I'm going to worry about my next quarter. Right. You get drawn into 4,000 years in the right. past, you have to think about way <laughs> into the future and managing the present as India has moved into a middle income country right. is also so complex because you're dealing with malnutrition mm -hmm. and diabetes at the same time. Right. And <laughs> so the, the aspirational crowd, right? It has so much disposable income. So you have to think much more broadly in terms of time, in terms of, and I think the other huge um, advantage that Indians have is as much as we've embraced the idea of individual excellence and studying, there's always that community aspect that's in the back of your mind. And I think even in technology and all these companies, ultimately what you're trying to do is create community. Mm -hmm. That's the one thing we have and the one thing we've understood and never lost track of. And I think... Tapping into that um, is also very powerful. Okay. So what's the one thing that is the most exciting thing in your life right now? I think a lot, the excitement now is, you know, I spent a lot of time in libraries like mm -hmm. a geek when I was younger. <laughs> and, you know, you think you have to have the perfect answer. But now I think the, the mindset and the problems itself that business are trying to address don't have any set answer. There isn't mm -hmm. a precedent you can look to. So the exciting thing now is being able to just get your hands dirty and try something mm -hmm. and try to experiment. And I, that's been the real capacity, I think, of, of India going forward, of mm -hmm. people here, great companies like Apple inspiring people. Mm -hmm. So it's so exciting for entrepreneurs to say, let me give this a shot. The value of expertise mm -hmm has gone down and the importance of experimentation has skyrocketed. And that's exciting. Going from expertise to experimentation. Yeah, I mean, you have to learn. I mean, they always used to tell us when we were growing up, make sure you study, you're only going to look good for a certain number of years and everything else will leave you other. But you know what? I mean, and you're in Southern California, you're like, wow, you know, <laughs> people can get injected with all kinds of things and they can look good for a long time. But to be considered smart, it's getting shorter. <laughs> so you have to really embrace learning. Well, there's only that much space. <laughs> <laughs> You're squeezing your brains out at some point. So any books or new projects that we should be looking forward to? Yeah, I am actually deepening my involvement in a few of the organizations mm -hmm. I'm working with. Uh, one is called Arogia World, right. where we're basically trying to um, understand how to stem the tide of non-communicable diseases like cardiac failure, mm -hmm. cancer, diabetes, things that can be managed with lifestyle changes and using technology to create the awareness and mm -hmm. programming around that. Um, India has always historically been an infectious disease emphasis and that's really changing with um, you know economic growth. Right. So we 
have programs for workplace, for schools, mm -hmm. and for um, just the general public through text messaging. And so we've had a lot of you know, good feedback. We've shown some clinical results about, we're able to do about 15% behavior change, which is very it's unusual huge. for yeah. a um, mobile health app. And so we're really looking now closely at ways to increase our impact. And uh, another initiative that I'm giving a lot of my time to is um, the University of Michigan created mm -hmm. a CK Prahalad initiative, which right. is continuing the research that was in the bottom of the pyramid book. And so we've had really interesting projects come mm -hmm. through um, that where students are going out and really researching and understanding how to do all kinds of things. Now it's not really dealing with abject poverty, but they have clients like ICICI, Mahindra, mm -hmm. um, the Unique ID was a client. Right. So people are coming in and saying, what can we do, not just for the bottom of the pyramid, how do we look at wealth management in India right. differently? How do we look at organic produce mm -hmm. and some very interesting medical devices? How do we look at all the distribution, marketing, branding strategies around that? So that's also been really exciting. And my mother and I travel back to Ann Arbor mm -hmm. um, every year to see the student presentation. So yes. I feel good that a legacy is being continued in his university as well. That's great. Um, any thoughts on, on philanthropy? I mean, we just kind of talked about some things, but what do you think in terms of, you know, what us as Indians are doing and should be doing in that space? I think in India, the view of philanthropy, um, you know, it's a newer topic. Mm -hmm. People have always on a smaller scale in their community right. done a lot. But I do think that for our community, the idea of service is baked in even to your choice of careers. Right. So if you're a professor or a doctor, I mean, the helping is also your day job, right? It's not even a separate activity. But I think what's really helpful is if people stop looking only at, let me write a check. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of NGOs, people who are trying to do good things, need help on very basic things, speaking the language of business, um, mm -hmm. you know, producing an IT website, finding the appropriate right. volunteers. So giving time and expertise is also really important and right. I think we've tended to do that in our cultural activities but we need to do it more broadly right. more in our community. Right. Okay. Well, any practical and philosophical thoughts for other entrepreneurs that want to take this journey? I think the practical, I don't know about philosophical, but the, <laughs> from a practical point of view, if you're an entrepreneur, of course you're always going to be preoccupied right. with, with funding, making sure you have um, money in place, but I think you have to always worry about building the bank of mm -hmm. ideas. Keep experimenting, even if you're pretty happy with what you have right mm -hmm. now. If you succeed, people will copy it, people will right. co-opt it, and you'll also get partners mm -hmm. who will give you money but may want to push you and pull you right. in different directions. Mm -hmm. So if you've done a lot of experiments, you might have a much better understanding of mm -hmm. what direction you want to go, what's right. exciting for you, because you can't perform even with a big check if you're not excited right. and interested. Right about the direction um, you're going. So, so keep experimenting. Your next passion, even yeah, if you have and, one. and I think especially in social entrepreneurship, mm -hmm. one thing that's very tricky and you have to always be careful about is there are places where you don't want to increase your market. If I'm dealing with right. child trafficking, right. I don't want to have 10 times the number of consumers. I right. want to be able to shrink the need. Right. <laughs> I want to be able to say, I helped enough people that this right. is not a problem anymore. Right. Or it's just, I've thrown it underground and it's um, going to need limited interventions. Yeah. And that's very yeah. difficult um, for a lot of people to, to come to terms with. We have another question. Um, 
Okay, kind of related to this one. What is your advice for young entrepreneurs? Where, where should they start? I think you really have to start with um, what feels right to you. Take the time mm -hmm. to figure things out because anything can add value, anything can be interesting, rewarding. Um, you don't, and even if you want to start and address a big problem, it can be done in counterintuitive mm -hmm. ways. And I think what you need to take time is even if something bothers you, especially in the social entrepreneurship space, some injustice or some situation really bothers you, always take time to find out why that situation exists. What's the mm -hmm. hidden logic people have right. behind it? Because if you don't have that, then creating a solution doesn't really have it's impact. If people, yeah. the people who absolutely need it, if they don't adopt it, this was something we went through with the roofing. A lot of mm -hmm. investors came in and they gave very different um, advice and all of it was good. Actually, they weren't bad ideas. Mm -hmm. But I finally said, wait a minute, people like me are not, not the customer. I can have an opinion, but you know what? It's not going to go on my roof. So the mm -hmm. only opinion that matters at this stage, now that we know it works, <laughs> is the opinion of the person who has to put it on their right. roof. Are they going to pay for it and how much? And, and are they yeah. going to feel good about it? And are right. they going to have the chai party right under right. their roof the day it's installed because they're so excited? Right. And always um, think about, even if you feel you have a solution, keep thinking about what the progression is and don't look at it only in your industry. I think what happens is even very big companies, for example, mm -hmm. when they're looking at the bottom of the pyramid, they've tended to say, let me make this cheaper. Right. But I think if you look at Crayola, for example, mm -hmm. they take a chubby kid's hand who has no motor skills right. and they make an egg-shaped crayon yeah. and then they make some triangle-shaped crayons mm -hmm. and within three years, they're taking you into a digital space. Right. And if we looked at the bottom of the pyramid in the same way mm -hmm. of not saying, well, let me just give you something um, to prevent social unrest, rather than saying, wow, I know you're an asset and I'm I just can't wait you. to see what you create. So wherever you are, right. I'm giving you this and I'm going to see how you do with it. And I'm going to make sure that when you're, you go forward, I'm going to take you out of this situation and into the next thing. Right. And I think all of us have that mindset when it comes to our children. And if we have that mindset when it comes to society at large, mm -hmm. we'll create a lot more interesting products and we'll find out what greatness really was there that we aren't seeing. That's, that's really profound. I mean, I, I can see, you know, it's simple to say grow with your customer, but the thought process behind it, relating it to as you did as a mother would to their child, that's, that's really, <laughs> really interesting. Well. Uh, thanks a lot for being with Absolutely. us. This was, this was great. I really enjoyed talking to you. And uh, thank you all for, for joining us. We'll see you next time. See you. Bye. Thank you.